for dealing with the past in post-conflict areas has become part of the normal reconstruction package, basically. It has become a normal, normal thing, and this whole development of the International Criminal Court, or the International Criminal Law up to the level of the International Criminal Court, um, this is part of this normalization of transitional justice. So, additional concepts for this research, and probably I should say this research, this presentation is part of an ongoing research project I, I have together with five more colleagues, actually. Um, Mohamed Saeed, who just presented in, in the first panel, he's part of this research project. Um, two more Somali colleagues and one more Swiss colleague. Are, so we are six people in the, in the, in the, in the or oh, we are five people actually. No, and there's one more Somali actually in Mogadishu. So we are six people in the project since one and a half years basically trying to come to terms with this transitional justice issue in Somali territories. And that not only concerns southern Somalia or northern Somalia, it also concerns region five in Ethiopia and it also concerns Somali diaspora. So we try to cover, of course, a wide range of Somali areas throughout the world. However, we are just five, uh, six people, so um, of course the results are not absolutely representative or something like that. It's kind of a pilot project. And I'm, what I'm doing is I'm trying to, I'm presenting a little bit our general positions and then I'm going into the empirical material which I myself collected in northern Somalia and in Eastly in Kenya. So another assumption we have for our project, or another conceptual background we have is anthropology of violence, where you, uh, violence where you have uh, disruptive events, which however also have a very formative power um, in post-conflict settings. And I will come back to that actually when talking a bit more about Somaliland in particular, where I would argue that a certain narrative of trauma has really become formative for the Somaliland state or the Republic of Somaliland. So the argument is that basically violence is of course destructive and horrible and leaves a really bad legacy and this is sometimes dealt with in transitional justice concepts uh, framework. However, violence in a way also provides, you know, the memory of violence and the construction of a trauma narrative sometimes provides a constructive basis for building a new polity and I think this is one aspect of Somaliland which leads us to new problems when you think about the other Somalias, right? and South Central Somalia, basically. Another concept which informs this research is legal pluralism. I don't know how, how many of you are um, acquainted with this concept. It's basically just looking at, at um, legal issues in, in societies where you have plural normative repertoires and legal authorities like Sharia law, you have hair in the Somali context, customary law, you have, of course, statutory law, and you could add even international law, particularly when it comes to transitional justice or international human rights law. So all these aspects will play a role in the presentation. And then um, what I found very interesting personally when, when we started to con conceptualize our project was, uh, what was something which Rosalind Shaw and Lars Waldorf have called a place-based place -based approach to transitional justice. So they have edited a whole volume, it's called Localizing <coughs> Transitional Justice, 2010. It's a very interesting book, I would think, which compiles um, really anthropological expertise on post-conflict settings like L Liberia or Uganda, I mean if you want to call them post-conflict or whatever, conflict settings, anthropological expertise on these settings and anthropological takes on transitional justice. And their basic argument is that um, we really have to do, I mean if you want to narrow it down, we have to do bottom-up bottom transitional justice studies. And very often this concept which the UN introduced and which is picked up by many international NGOs and human rights organizations is really a top-down concept. It's basically informed by this liberal peace model or by a certain Western ideology of, of, of um, post-conflict transition, I would say. 
And uh, what, what the anthropological approach to it, and that's not really surprising, but it's still interesting, um, that you really have to, to start from the bottom. But the bottom is not just the local in you know the local area in contrast to the national field, in contrast to the international field. Basically, what they argue is we have to look at a certain locale and look at disentangle all these legal, political conflict, whatever dynamics in this locale, which are related to something what we can call transitional justice or the search for justice, right? So having a local approach in this context doesn't mean the typical anthropological stuff we go <coughs> in our village and look around what the natives are doing, but um, basically we sit in a certain place, in this certain place, maybe a village, maybe an airport, maybe a capital city, maybe the UN headquarter in New York, whatever, and we look at the dynamics unfolding around a certain topic in this locale and who are the actors and what are the intended and what are the unintended consequences. And I think there are a lot of unintended consequences of transitional justice uh, interventions in certain areas. And this is exactly what this book, in a way, disentangles. Just in order to give you a, a little bit of conceptual background, what I would think is one of our main hypotheses, and what is certainly my hypothesis for this presentation is, that we look at questions of transition and justice, and this doesn't automatically lead us to a concept of transitional justice. So basically there is, you have to disentangle or distinguish between transition and justice. And this distinction has a potential to kind of challenge the normative assumptions about transitional justice, which prevail, I would say, in the NGO and international organizations literature. <coughs> I, I hope that this kind of hypothesis becomes clearer at the end of my talk when I try to sum up the data on the Somali areas. So the method of data collection was doing semi-structured interviews, so field work. I did field work in Somaliland, I did field work in, in, in East Lee, and uh, my colleagues, they did field work in other locales, rel uh, locations related to, to so Somalis and Somalia. Like, um, <coughs> they did it in partly in Toronto, in Berkeley, in Minnesota, in London actually, in parts of, in, in parts of the UK, in Mogadishu. So we had you know, certain locales within the Horn of Africa and certain locales in North America and Europe, at least. Another, of course, another part of our methodology is kind of trying to look at the, you know, creating a certain baseline of what really has happened or what do we think has happened <coughs> in the past 25, 30, 40, no, 35 years, basically, in different areas in North Africa related to the Somali tragedy, like the Region 5 or Ogaden region or Southern Somalia, Northern Somalia. Um, and then also get in contact with kind of experts who are busy with <coughs> transitional justice in the Somali setting. And I will come back to that again. But one of these external actors is the Center for Justice and Accountability, which has its uh, headquarters, I think, in, 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 um, in Berkeley. Um, so they are uh, a US NGO, which is at the aim of bringing perpetrators who reside, at uh, the international human rights violators who reside in the US to justice. And they just, to give you, a, give you a, an idea why I think they're very important. They were those who were actively supporting the case of General Mohammed Ali Samata, um, which recently concluded, and I will come back to that. Good, so after all this kind of introductory stuff, uh, let me talk a little bit about, um, about uh, Somali's situation. Most of you know it very well. Um, in this talk, I don't really focus very much on Southern Somalia. It plays a role, and I try to come back to it in the conclusions. However, in southern Somalia, you have a very complex um, dynamic of violence uh, over the last um, 23, 24 years, actually longer even. But just I tried with these pictures, I tried to kind of capture a few aspects of 
of the past decades of violence, and maybe similarly to Laura Hammond, you can have you know this kind of three steps approach. You had first the warlord violence in the early 1990s, and Litwin is having a very interesting presentation on that in the next panel. Um, we have also an aspect of, of, of transitional justice, if you like, which is very often ignored and which I personally think has to get in when you talk about transitional justice in Somalia, which is foreign military interventions and all the havoc they caused, actually. I mean, I don't know, most of you may have seen the, the, the film Black Hawk Down. I will never forget that like, at the end of the film, you have this kind of 17 rangers or 18 rangers who have been killed, and then there's just the next sentence between 500 and 800 Somalis have been killed on the same day. And most of them have not been killed in battle. They were not Mohammed Farah Hadith's guys, but most of them have been killed, whatever, in houses which were kind of in the area of the fighting because the, the rangers, the, the American forces were using high potency whatever, weapons, bullets, whatever, which were hitting a couple of walls through and kind of killed people who were absolutely unrelated to the fighting. So I guess this is something which is not really talked about when it comes to transitional justice. I mean, Somalia is not the only setting where these kind of things play a role. Um, and it's really not talked about. And this is something I think the Somali case should highlight as well. Of course, you have the more recent phase of violence, which is related to what people usually call political Islam or militant Islamism, which introduced, again, new qualities of internal fighting and also new qualities of external support for this fighting. Just um, this is you know, the complexity of the setting in the South. I will come back to the North in a minute. But um, just to, to, to say it already now, there, there is, of course, no, no serious um, endeavor to think about, I mean, even to think about or to to really practically introduce transitional justice in South and Somalia right now. I think, and this is, I mean, one reason is that just yesterday, as you would say in Somalia, in Somalia, just yesterday the fighting, it didn't even stop actually. So that's just a construction that there's no fighting anymore, that things are getting better. I mean, as we heard from our colleague, there's uh, Al-Shabaab in very many places, actually in most places of South and Somalia, still around. And there are still daily battles, I, as far as I believe. So there's no, I mean, it's not, it's not, not, not anywhere close to a transitional period, in fact, when it comes to justice. Good. So um, nonetheless, part of the, or the idea of this project was to really do a study on transitional justice in the Somali setting before it really happens. So basically what we wanted to scope were Somali ideas about transitional justice. So um, that's why we did started this, this study, including South Central Somalia, where there is no way of a transition right now. And I did a, a few interviews in, in Isli uh, last year. And um, what came out of it is, and that's again really com comparable to, to other settings like uh, Sierra Leone or Liberia or um, other areas where early on some anthropologists pursued this kind of um, investigations on transitional justice. What came out of it is, just in a nutshell, that people we are really not interested in transitional justice, that they didn't have any idea about the concept, which is also not astonishing. Um, or we can come back to that later, but uh, they didn't really have an idea about it. They were much more interested in, you know, they were much more talking about the lack of stability and peace in Somalia, and basically about survival. You know, if you, if you talk with, with recent refugees, and I mean, last year, recent refugees in Isli, some of them really had just run away from Al-Shabaab or from the Ethiopian troops or from both a few months before I interviewed them. Okay, There were a few women I interviewed. They just said, I come from Luke, from Gedo area, whatever. We saw all these Ethiopian troops running over people and doing this and that <coughs> in the name of fighting terrorism. And um, 
So it was different from now, okay? It was really an, an ongoing war setting in South Central Somalia, and uh, people were clearly concerned with survival and um, bringing some, some sort of stability to their homelands. Um, how, however, if you push people a little bit on the question of what really could be justice in the future, what should be done in order to, to deal with all these past injustices, many of them said basically came up with a rather pragmatic idea about <coughs> forgiving and forgetting, um, which is also, if you look at comparative cases, whatever, in, in, in certain areas, um, uh, that, uh, that this is kind of uh, the answer of people who are still in this kind of uh, situation of upheaval and uncertainty. Um, and this is again something which you can learn about transition, transition of justice. I mean, it's just a small aspect of it. But really, of course, the, the, the general security setting sets the agenda for thinking about justice. Right? If you're in, and this is part of our project which we want to kind of really bring out. If you sit comfortably in, in, in Minneapolis or in Toronto and you don't have to worry about your food every day and about your personal security, then you can think differently about these issues than if you sit in as a kind of recent, uh, refuge, uh, recent arrival in Nairobi or if you si sit somewhere in South Central Somalia. So your priorities are simply different and these kind of things should be reflected and they are actually ethnographically reflected in, 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 in research on transitional justice, but they, there's a certain disconnect with the general concept of transitional justice which is promoted as a peace-building intervention and the realities of discussions of about transitional justice on the ground in a certain locale. Good, um, of course, in the Somali setting, and this is also very often absent really from from uh, from the debate on, in, on on transitional justice more generally. Um, people had, of course, there's a certain Islamic flavor to to what justice is, right? So there are different concepts of justice. I would say, uh, um, in Muslim societies. From compared to comparatively uh, to predominantly Christian societies in the Omnitor Force. So, I mean, this, this came out to some degree, but it should be pursued further. Um, the only ones who really had a more elaborated um, idea about what's, what, what transitional justice should mean in the Somali setting were actually members of so called minority groups like Ashraf, Obantu, Chadeh who we, we interviewed also in East Lee, and then they were really saying we don't have to, I mean, we don't want to only tackle. The, the injustices or violence or whatever, human rights violations that happened after 1991 or from 1991 onwards. If we want to really talk about transitional justice, we have to talk about structural transformation in Somali society. There have been many injustices before against them, structural injustices, and this is actually part of the transitional justice package. Just to give you an overview, like a snapshot from, from these interviews I did in Isli last year. Now let, let, let's shift a little bit uh, to northwestern Somalia, to Somaliland, where I spent actually many years over the, in the last 12 years, I spent basically two and a half years there. Um, and I don't have to go through all this history of violence in the northwest. We already heard that basically in 1988 when the civil war escalated in the north, there was massive fighting between the National Army and a local guerrilla group called the Somaliland National, uh, Somali National Army, um, <coughs> the, um, Somali National Movement, SNM. Here you just have uh, a snapshot from, from this um, war memorial, civil war memorial in Hargeisa, basically the pedestal which depicts the, the horror of the fighting. Um, and then you have, if you think about it, and that's all kind of ex post reflections. Although if you, and there's one article by a Somali colleague who basically makes this argument, which I'm outlining now, that there has been already a transitional justice process in, uh, in Somaliland. I mean, it never had been really called transitional justice process. 
And after thinking about it, I would even say one, one cannot really call it a transitional justice process. One has to call the first part of it like a transition process. That's what, what the literature in, in general is really doing. And the second part of, of what I'm presenting now, a few slides down, is basically more about justice. So just be in mind, this is not transitional justice, but this is transition and justice, as I said in the introduction. So the transition really, really started kind of bottom-up. It was using Somali culture and traditions in order to bring peace and stability to a war-torn society in northwestern Somalia. It was a homegrown approach which really relied on traditional authorities as those people who could bring people together agree on you know, compensation, establish new ad hoc laws called in, within the concept of HER, and kind of also preventing future violence by really writing into these HER agreements that anybody who would loot somebody after, after they two clans entered this kind of HER, or anybody who would kill somebody should be executed. So as those of you who are familiar with Somali traditional law, law or customary law, they would know that usually it's about compensation. It's usually about um, collective accountability for individual deeds, right? So if I kill somebody, my family, my extended family will cover up for me, though I will really not feel the weight of this crime, if you like. Um, and in order to prevent further instability, traditional authorities got together in Bro Ergavo, in Hargeisa, in other places, in small villages, and agreed that you know, we will change the customary law at this point and we will switch to Sharia law and say and emphasize, emphasize a certain aspect of Sharia law which is the killer needs to be killed. I mean, if you kill somebody, you will simply be executed. And it's the closest relative of the victim who will execute the perpetrator. And this deterred violence in, in certain settings. I, I got it from a head agreement in Ergawa actually and from others. So this, this seemed to be a quite um, helpful innovation, legal innovation in a, in a very unstable setting. But of course, there were also compromises and silences. So as I said, usually for the past violence, at least, there was no individual accountability established. There was no reckoning for certain aspects of violence, like sexual violence was really not discussed. This, by the way, was pretty similar in, in South Africa with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Um, and also the systematic state repression under Siad Bade, which of course was not just his individual repression, but I mean, how many people have been part of this regime? It was also not just Southerners, or it was not just Tarot, or whatever. It was basically everybody who was part of the regime was part of this repressive apparatus. To some extent, at least you could make this argument. But there was no discussion about these kind of issues. Nonetheless, this kind of transition process in Somaliland in the early 1990s set the, the, the provided the basis for, for kind of a fragile trust, intercommunal trust, which was established. And I would even argue that the silences were the precondition for this trust. And this, if you like to follow me in this, this is really contrary to, to what the established transitional justice literature on the, on the international NGO level and so on would, would, would say. This is a pragmatic way of establishing peace, basically. So it wasn't really about justice, I guess. So and there remained a lot of uneasy memories. And this is just a long quotation from Mohammed Mohammed Ibrahim Eagle, the second president of Somalia. We don't have to read it all. However, I just provide you a little bit of the context. So this, this was in an interview in 2001 when he reflected on, on, the, on an event in 1997 when heavy rains uncovered mass graves in Hargeisa. And this whole issue, you know, in a way, this kind of, these silences were broken, okay? If you remember, the silences in the early 1990s were a basis for the intercommunal trust in Somaliland. When these heavy rains uncovered the mass graves, 
in Hargeisa, many people came to those mass graves and started shouting and screaming and, and crying and demanding justice, okay? And then Muhammad Hashim Ibrahim Igal came and said, we, we don't want to go any deeper in this area, okay? We don't need to do that. And I'm, I'm rephrasing, I'm paraphrasing what he's basically saying, I guess. Um, because we cannot really be sure who did what, okay? That's just a couple of bones in Hargeisa, in a mass grave, okay? Most probably, they have been our people, but still they have been informants for the governments who were from our area. <laughs> and they have been, I mean, in a civil war, it's a dirty thing, so there's no clear distinction between victims and perpetrators. So that's basically what he said. Let's kind of not, not go deeper into it, because I think he sensed that this endeavor would shake the intercommunal trust on which Somaliland had been built. And the silences have simply been part of the package of Somaliland. Nonetheless, in order to please the masses, and that's not my interpretation, but I guess I could substantiate it, in order to please the masses, he, uh, he, he decreed the establishment of the te uh, Technical Commission for the Investigation of, of War Crimes. Um, and this, uh, this commission was visited by me a couple of times between 2004 and 2012, you can say, or 2013. <laughs> and what was really stunning is they were really frustrated and underfunded. So they, they sat somewhere not far from the governmental area, and they were complaining that they compiled all these reports and they, all these documentations and international NGOs like Amnesty International or the Center for Justice and Accountability, they were really interested in what they were doing, but the government was not. So the government in Hargeisa was, I would say, deliberately marginalizing them, probably, most probably for political reasons. And here you have a, a quotation from then chairman of this uh, committee who basically follow, follows this international transitional justice discourse or this NGO discourse, like if we don't know what happened in the past, all these things will happen tomorrow. And this guy is, by the way, now the Minister of Justice in Somaliland at the moment. Um, 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 what comes out from all that is um, I mean, one, one, one uneasy memory behind all that is this, this con uh, one, one, one aspect of this debate about justice in Somaliland in the, in the late 1990s. Um, in early 2000 is that you have these contested memories and I guess Litwin again will probably say much more on these contested memories in the Somali setting but what you can really find out is if you travel anywhere across the Somali territories you always have this I mean you would say this opposing hate narratives I guess mm -hmm. and I would say you have this um, you know this you know our hero or your hero is our killer or whatever our killer is your hero so I mean, you travel from Hargeisa to Las Anna, from Las Anna to Belkayo, and then I guess you, if you would travel on to the south, you would have these kind of narratives um, that um, the same people like General Morgan feature in absolutely <coughs> opposed roles. For the one, he's a hero. For the others, he's a killer. And you can do the same thing with certain people from Hargeisa and with certain people from Las Anna and so on and so forth. So far about what I would call the homegrown attempts to transition and justice. Now to a kind of transnational transitional justice project, which involves the Center of Justice and Accountability. So I mean, there's a long story, and I don't have so much time. Um, but um, there was a group of Somalis from Hargeisa who have been locked up under Mohammed Siyadbari in the 1980s for many, many years in solitary confinement. They are called uh, members of this UFO group, like uh, Dr. Adn Abukor and Basha Abdiere and Abdi Aziz Mohammed Eid. Those guys who were freed after an Amnesty International initiative in the late 1980s, they were released and the American government obviously <coughs> offered them residence in the US. Many of those guys took up this chance, okay? Basha Abdiere, Mohammed Abdi Aziz, Mohammed Eid, those guys took up residence in the US. And many years later, 
their children, they, they, set, they settled down in Virginia, obviously, and many years later, some of their children went to a school, and they happened to go to the same school where the children of uh, General Muhammad Ali Samata went, and he was, at one point, I think, foreign minister of the Somali Republic, and he was, what else was he? I mean, he was, no, he was a um, defense minister, defense minister, and I think uh, vice president. Vice minister, yeah, vice minister. Uh, so, I mean, he was, uh, he was a lot of things, but he was definitely one of the highest-ranking Somali officials in the time when uh, the civil war in the north escalated in the light, late 1980s. So he was Minister of Defense, and arguably, after, after Mohammed Siad had died in exile in the early 90s, um, probably Mohammed Ali Samata was the, the, the highest-ranking living Somali official, I mean, highest-ranking in the military uh, regime, at least. So he lived, obviously, in the U.S. Some of these victims' children went to school with the perpetrators' children. They started to pursue these, this issue. They hooked up with the Center for Justice and Accountability. And uh, that must have been around 2000. Several, uh, the Center for Justice and Accountability paid several visits to Hargeisa, to this uh, Office for the Investigation of War Crimes. So this is all how, how these kind of tiny little connections were established and continued. This case went through all kinds of stages, actually, which, which I tried to outline here briefly. At one point, it went before the High Court in the U.S. It was uh, the question if is the question was if Mohammed Ali Samatar uh, would uh, enjoy uh, immunity or not as a former state official. The High Court decided that he doesn't enjoy immunity. And finally, when I was in, in, in Isli last year, in early in early 2012, actually the case ca came to a conclusion. General Ali Samatar um, kind of signed a default. Um, agreement that, that he is really responsible for these bombardments in Hargeisa. Um, he filed for bankruptcy at the same time and just before that. Um, and um, so on the one hand, morally, it was a big victory. It was, it was at least presented as a big victory for the victims who hailed from northern Somalia but in, at that time resided in the USA. Concretely, actually, there was no real sentence. I mean, there was a sentence. At eventually, in 2012, in, in, in August, I believe, they, 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 they said he would be um, sentenced to pay 21 million US dollar, but he had filed for bankruptcy before that. So there's no really damages paid. And those damages would only <coughs> go to the claimants, to the four, four people who were pushing the case. So there, it's, not, it's not kind of like a, it's not like a, it's a big thing for some people, but for some people it really wasn't a big thing. Um, and this were the reactions, some of the reactions in, in Isli, actually, where we don't need this kind of things. In Isli, people said, this is just disrupting, this is just creating more disunity um, than helping Somalia to become stable. <coughs> but this, again, was against the background of all these dynamics of violence which were going on in last year in, in, in South Central Somalia. And of course, many people in Isli I interviewed were not from Northern Somalia, but from Southern Somalia. So you, again, this clan dimension comes in, or these kind of divisions within Somali society. But even in northern Somalia, where I went after this, um, this verdict was, was issued, um, people had quite mixed opinions. Okay? I don't have to read you all these opinions, and it's of course only a, a few opinions I, I, I present here. But really, I mean, if you, if you like, some people say um, it's, it's just not productive to go after these uh, individual perpetrators. We would need, if we want to have something, then we want to have a proper you know, general transitional justice framework for all of Somalia and not just you know, going after Mohammed Ali Samata. That's not really productive. Um, some people said, like Mohammed Adrawi, actually, he was pretty strong on that. He said, no, no, it's, it's very good. He deserves to be sentenced. He should. It's great that he went before court and that this decision was taken. Um, others, like this woman, like, uh, she said, um, I would like to forgive him. She was really one uh, a person who, 
who suffered concretely after, uh, through the bombardment in Bor oh, and she, she lost her child, I think, when she was fleeing Bor in 1988, and so on and so forth. But you know, they, they, she came up with this more Islamic idea that Muhammad Ali Samata is an old guy now, he's sick and we don't want to go after him. So what you just in a nutshell have, you have a huge variety of opinions in Isli between South, North and South Somalia, but also in Northern Somalia and Somaliland. Um, and the spectrum is quite, quite wide from it's really unproductive and we don't need to have that stuff to it's great that, that he has been sentenced and we need more of that. Um, good, I mean, this is, so to say, what I would call the second phase, which is a transitional, uh, transnational transitional justice. The last example I want to bring about transitional justice in the Somali settings is a Western NGO, or an international NGO intervention, again in Somaliland, which just started recently. And again, it, it brings together all these connections. So this group of Northern Somalis, Somali diaspora guys in the US, they hooked up with the Center for Justice and Accountability. The Center for Justice and Accountability is good friends with a Peruvian NGO, which is called, I cannot really pronounce it properly, the, the, the abbreviation is EPAF. EPAF is a Peruvian NGO, and the guy who runs it actually is a forensic anthropologist who, who did a lot of you know, exhumations in, I think, in Peru, probably in Guatemala, and he was very busy working with the Special Tribunal for former Yugoslavia. <coughs> so he's an international forensic anthropologist with a couple of other guys. They connected with the government in Hargeisa and say, let's do a field workshop on forensic anthropology and human rights uncovering Somaliland's troubled past. And this happened last fall. And the idea was, I read through the announcements of this workshop and so on, to kind of really bring international students and local students and whatever together in you know, uncovering what happened in Somalia, opening mass graves, identifying the idea, uh, you know, trying to find out the identity of the victims and kind of bringing a closure to the whole genocide, as they call it, in northern Somalia, 1988 to 1991. Um, this project was endorsed by several ministers. I just named two of them, Minister for Justice and Minister of Religious Affairs. Remember, the Minister of Justice was the former chairman of this uh, committee or office for the investigation of war crimes. I had a very interesting discussion with the Minister of Religious Affairs recently, just a few weeks ago, where he really explained the Islamic concept between exhumation and reburial. Because in the media, people started saying, you know, exhumations is really not something which you should do in a Somali setting. This is un-Islamic. And he said, no, no, no. I mean, he gave an example from the time of the prophet when there was a certain battle and afterwards the bones just le were left scattered on the field or they were not properly buried. Though it is allowed actually in Islam to, to exhume mass graves which have not been, I mean, people have not been really buried in the Islamic way to, to take them out of the graves, to wash the bones, to pack them properly and to bury them in an Islamic way and to, to pray for, for the dead. This is kind of the idea behind it, the religious idea. But of course, there's also like a political idea behind it. And this is something I'm only know, hinting at and not really going into any depth, but in a way, I said already that Somaliland is based on a certain trauma narrative, like we have been killed, we have been mass murdered, we stood up against all that, and that's why we have an independent Somaliland now and we don't want to go back to the south. This narrative has been produced for a while, it has not led to international recognition yet, and in my perspective, some government actors which are involved with this current project of exhumation in Somaliland with the help of this international NGO, they see this as one chance. I mean, it's not the whole idea behind the project, but they certainly see it as one, a chance to highlight this narrative again and to bring it to the fore and basically produce forensic proof for their narrative. Good. 
all that is highly contested, okay? There is a lot of counter-narratives to all that. There is a lot of question marks around this issue. Um, and I just, in this presentation, which comes to a conclusion now, I just try to, to highlight a few aspects of transitional justice in the Somali setting. And um, the only place where you have something which brings transition and justice together, at least in some regards, is Somaliland, right? I mean, it's not transitional justice from the beginning, but ex post, if you look at the different stages, what I just tried to outline in this presentation, you have transition and justice, and it, 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 it kind of forms something like transitional justice. However, even transitional justice in Somaliland is not really going in, in conformity with the international concept of transitional justice, which is promoted by the UN. So it's a very imperfect form of transitional justice if you come from the normal high grounds of, of, of New York or wherever. Or, um, um, but it was very practical in the early 1990s, um, or actually up until today, to, 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 to provide a basis for coexistence in this war-torn society and post-conflict society of Somaliland. Um, you had these different um, interventions from outside, a diaspora intervention or transnational intervention. You had even recently an international intervention. And this last one, I think, and that's just, again, a hypothesis we, which I really couldn't prove so far, this last one at least runs the risk that to undermine the social trust. And there were some indicators when I was around that people had really quite different opinions on this exhumation exercise by EPAF. And that was predictable, right? I mean, people in Hargeisa, some people in Hargeisa, let's say, were pretty happy about it. Even in Hargeisa, people had, had all kinds of question marks about it. But people in other areas in Western Somaliland or Eastern Somaliland, let alone further east or south, would see this as a potential threat. The government in Hargeisa always argues, and let's say the Minister of Justice always would argue, we are not pursuing the perpetrators, we only want to know what happened. But of course, I mean, once you start digging the bones, if you allow, then most people want to know who's actually responsible for that. And some of those people who are actually responsible for that, they're not only residing in Virginia or in Brussels or I don't know where, but they also reside just in Somalia, right? They may reside even in Hargeisa, or they may reside in Las Anod, or they may reside in Baran, but they, they reside somewhere there. And, you know, transitional justice is very often after about establishing individual responsibility. But Somali society is nowhere there, right? There is no individual accountability in most Somali territories. Well, this guy who sits in Baran, whatever people around him may think in general, once he gets accused of being responsible for that stuff in El Afwain, let's say, then they will rise up. Most probably they will rise up as a clan or as at least as a subclan or lineage or whatever, as a collective, try to defend it. And then it's not really about transitional justice, then it's just about politics, right? And this is really a big issue. So just to conclude now, really, um, I think um, there, 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 is, there is this the, the connection with transition and justice is th th there's no real connection still in the Somali setting. Northern Somalia or Somaliland is as close as, as it could get to this connection to real transitional justice. However, even there, it's not we are not quite there. There are all these multiple divides between <coughs> north and south, between north and north, between diaspora and non-diaspora, and the, between international and local. And the main danger when you talk about transitional justice, and when particularly when you just try to introduce it as a model which would, you know, come from South Africa and Rwanda and wherever and should just be imposed on Somali society. And this is actually, some, some discussions within the UN are going exactly along those lines. This really runs a huge, huge danger of politicization of justice in the Somali setting. Thank you.